on this episode of The Kinked Wire. The one thing that I was recognizing very quickly was that at that time, there was very, very little guidance from the CDC. A lot of the information was coming from publications from the Chinese experience. And the changes that needed to be put in place were really things that hadn't been done before. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the new interventional radiology podcast from SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. In this episode, King Choir host Warren Krakow speaks with Raj Shah, an interventional radiologist in Palo Alto, California, about how his area has responded to the current pandemic, as well as the role he played in the development of SIR's COVID-19 toolkit. Hey, thanks a lot for being here. Really appreciate it. I want to just ask, first of all, how are you doing with COVID, both you know, in your institution and you know, people around you? How are things going so far for you? I think we're pretty fortunate here in the Bay Area. Things have been going pretty well. And I think a lot of that is because of the very early shelter in place order that was put in by the mayors of six counties in the Bay Area. And as you probably know, we were one of the areas that had early confirmed cases. And in addition, I think recently in the last 24, 48 hours, it came out that two deaths in February were actually in the Bay Area were from COVID. So it came to the area pretty early. And as a result, a lot of precautions were taken. So the census in the Bay Area across all the institutions I know of has been very, very manageable. ICUs have not been overwhelmed, fortunately, but all the preparations have been put in place to ensure that we can expand capacity in the ICUs as needed. Yeah, that's really good to hear. I, I know uh, California, as you pointed out, was was certainly among the early states to to be hit, and forecasts uh, were certainly fairly grim. Uh, of course, we still have a ways to go, but um, it seems that, as you pointed out, California really, both statewide and locally, took very aggressive early measures, and it's good to hear that that's been working well for you. When things first started, what did you notice going on in your hospital, maybe that was different? I mean, I, I'm sure there are a lot Lots of preparation and things like that. But did you start seeing COVID patients very early in IR or what happened from that perspective? So we actually saw things very early. I'm at the VA Palo Alto and we had actually received one of the first patients from one of the cruises at our VA. So very, very early on, we were designated as a facility um, within the federal system that was going to take these COVID patients. And when that happened, when we were notified, we had to start putting plans into place very, very early. And I think that's where a lot of my realization, at least, as to the complexity of what needed to happen really came to me. Because when we were trying to come up with our workflow plans for how are we going to manage if this scenario happens or if that scenario happens. The one thing that I was recognizing very quickly was that at that time, there was very, very little guidance from the CDC. A lot of the information was coming from publications from the Chinese experience. And the changes that needed to be put in place were really things that hadn't been done before. And so it required a lot of innovation, a lot of thinking outside of the box, and really a tremendous amount of planning. So the things that we started seeing were creation of isolation wards for COVID patients, making sure we were securing things like PPE, trying to ramp up the testing capabilities, and trying to put in different processes that would really restrict movement of people within the hospital. So kind of like single entrances where there were checks and things like that. So very early on, we started to see these things happening. 
I can imagine it must have been a little uh, eyebrow raising at first when you found out that uh, you'd be getting the some of the passengers anyway from the cruise ship. Um, mm-hmm. how, how about in IR specifically? Anything different or did you uh, expect to get cases that, that you didn't or did your type of cases shift or anything like that? Our cases definitely shifted quite a bit. So when we were coming up with the plans for managing COVID and PY patients, as a hospital, we decided that all of these would be done in a single room up in the operating room, up in the EOR. So okay. early on, we decided that we weren't going to be doing the COVID cases down in interventional radiology. And there's positive and negative to it. Positive in the sense that we didn't have to put in place protections for patients who were coming in for their other procedures, potentially you know, being sandwiched between a COVID patient and things like that. But at the same time, of course, we wouldn't have access to all of our great equipment and supplies that we're used to down in IR. In regards to shifting for the rest of the caseload, we took a pretty aggressive approach in terms of trying to conserve PPE. So one of the first things that I think a lot of people were noticing were increased usage of masks and gloves and things like that. And as a result, we started very early on securing our PPE and managing the use of the PPE to make sure that we would always have enough. And with that in mind, we started to come up with ways that we can triage our patients to decide whether or not we should bring them. And you know, the VA as a system actually um, provided a lot of guidance for that. But we really started looking at our cases and saying, what here can really wait four weeks? What can wait two weeks? What can wait longer than 30 days? And we started to manage our patients that way. Now, as you can imagine, you know, some things like lung biopsies for cancer, for example, they're important. Um, But those patients, especially in our VA population where they're heavy smokers, are very, very high risk if they were to come in and have a complication, develop COVID. So it was really a case-by-case decision-making process between myself, the other interventional radiologists. We asked for the creation of an adjudication committee in case there were any cases where no one really agreed on. Fortunately, we haven't had to take any cases there. But in the first couple of weeks, we scaled down by probably around 75%. But now we're at the point where we're probably doing closer to 60 to 70% of what our prior volume was. Now, it's interesting to hear that you uh, shunted everything into one procedure room. I think that's a great idea. And, you know, perhaps something for folks to keep in mind, uh, you know, going forward. Is that already set up as a hybrid room? the the one up in the OR that you're talking about? So there was a lot of discussion on that. There is a hybrid room available, but in the end, they went with another OR room where we would use a C-arm if we needed to do any procedures. And there was a lot of discussion about whether we should do that or not. And in the end, when I looked at the type of cases that were being done by interventional radiologists on COVID-positive patients, very few of them would need, for example, angiography or, or advanced cases where we would need the conventional angiography type of system that we're used to. So after kind of going back and forth, I decided that based on taking everything into account, um, the safety of the staff, the patients, what types of cases would come through. I gave the okay and said I would be fine doing it in the OR with a C-arm. And I told them that now that that's established, here are some limitations. I cannot do these types of cases. Fortunately, Mm -hmm. they don't seem to be coming up frequently, but the hospital administration was fine with that. Yeah, that's, I think, really key and important to point out that those decisions are tough. And, you know, it sounds like you had lots of the major stakeholders and and had all the good discussions. 
but right, there's going to be compromises where, you know, certain kinds of, I don't know, maybe selective arteriography is, you know, <laughs> potentially going to be really challenging. And yet mm -hmm. you do need to take uh, the approach of, you know, you're looking at everybody else. So that's really tough. So I re really commend you for handling that and, and navigating those waters. Something else you said uh, got me thinking the sort of uh, COPD or uh, smoker, you know, requiring a lung biopsy. It, it got me thinking because it uh, had been looking through the SIR toolkit earlier, which I know you played a pivotal role in developing. Is this mm -hmm. is this sort of the genesis of how you got involved with the SIR toolkit? Yeah, that's exactly right. When we started getting notified that we were going to get these patients in, and I started to try to come up with a workflow here at our hospital, I was quickly realizing how challenging it was. And when reaching out to people, realizing that no one else was actually doing it, and with the lack of guidance at that time from the CDC, and, and now there's a, a lot of guidance from the CDC, fortunately, but with the lack of kind of information that was put out there, it was very, very hard to come up with an evidence-based plan. And so what I found myself doing was really going through all the evidence, both from the World Health Organization, from the CDC, from publications from China. And I was recognizing that this is going to be a very challenging process for a lot of people. And it would be nice if all of that information were put into one place where it's already been vetted for interventional radiologists to go to for information that's specific to interventional radiology. And that was kind of the birth of the COVID toolkit. Now, within quality and performance improvement within SIR, the plan was always to develop quality toolkits. And this just kind of became our first one out of necessity. Uh, so the, the structure and the framework was already there. We knew how we were going to be putting together these toolkits. We weren't anticipating on creating our first one until later this year. But when COVID came up, this kind of became a very critical need immediately and became a great opportunity for us to create our first toolkit. Yeah, I have to say it's an incredibly valuable resource. Uh, if people don't know about it, make sure you go on the SIR website and, and check it out. It seemed to me that this toolkit came out almost instantaneously. Is that correct? I mean, did it come out as, as early as uh, the beginning of March or was it more recent than that? It did. When we were initially talking about it and when I saw how fast COVID-19 was spreading, it was clear that there was no opportunity to wait to send this to a whole you know, large group of people to think about and discuss. And there was no way we were going to get this in a publication in, in any type of manner that was going to be up to date and could be released quickly. And so literally within probably four or five days of coming up with the decision to post it, we had put together the initial version and sent it around to several people for some uh, initial editing. And yeah, it was up pretty quickly, definitely in early March. It's a great resource. And I, and I think speaks, you know, certainly to you. And I, I'm guessing that was the uh, quality and performance improvement division that helped out on it. You know, the ability to sort of be so agile with uh, looking at what's going on and recognizing that there's just no way to get this out in a publication, as you said, but mm -hmm. people need this information. And, you know, the fact that it's updated as well really is very helpful. So the CDC guidance is critical and it's and is great, but you do need something specific to IR because what we do is really different uh, than a lot of other physicians. And we do have things that we need to consider, as you've pointed out, that, you know, not everybody else may need to consider. Mm -hmm. 
Where do you see things going now, at least in the Bay Area and California with COVID? You know, I know there's this talk now about reopening states and so on and so forth. But, from, you know, from your perspective, how are things looking, at least in, in your neck of the woods? That's, um, you know, that's a great question, because what I can really kind of go by are the things that are being put out by the local government, as well as things that I see. And one thing that I have noticed is initially, when the shelter in place order was put in, people were not really following it too well. But when Mm. I look outside these days, um, people are really working hard in San Francisco, in the city of San Francisco, to keep six feet of distance. So I'll see plenty of people out there jogging or walking, but everyone really makes a concerted effort to keep six feet of distance between them. And the office of the mayor, they've been um, starting to put out some requirements really for citizens in San Francisco to wear a mask at all times uh, when in public places. And part of that is kind of setting the next stage for reopening. So I don't know exactly when we're going to reopen, but I can see that the gears are starting to move. And I'm hoping it's soon, as everyone else is, I'm sure. We do have the benefit in the Bay Area of being a big tech hub. So a lot of people are able to work from home more than in other regions. And so, you know, I think that that will work to our advantage in the Bay Area. But at the same time, there are still so many small businesses and services that need people to be there in person that need to open up because everyone's hurting for money. And I know so many people who've tried to get money through um, the CARES Act, through the PPP, for example, And it's been a a huge challenge. So I'm hoping that things open up soon in the next couple of months, but I don't really know. You mentioned that to some extent, things were beginning to return to normal in terms of your service, though. I think you said 50 Mm -hmm. to 60%, something like that. Mm -hmm. Has that been more recently? Yeah, very recent. I would say in the last week or so. There's been kind of a shift in what's been happening. Um, Services that we would do as an outpatient we are now just doing while the patient is here as an inpatient because we don't want the patient to come back to the hospital if they don't need to. And, you know, we'll do what we can to squeeze these cases in. And so the types of cases have definitely shifted. I mean, we're still doing um, some chemo embos and radio embos and things like that. We're trying to delay the anesthesia cases because, of course, you know, anesthesia is doing a lot of intubation, extubations. They're, you know, helping upstairs in the ICU quite a bit, and we don't want to overwhelm them by any means. So we're trying to delay um, whatever we can. And as a result, the composition of the cases has changed where I'm doing things where I definitely would have said we'll do as an outpatient two months ago. I'm I'm doing them now because the patient's here. And are you still using that OR room for your C-arm cases? No, fortunately, we haven't had to use it um, for any of the COVID patients. So we're using our conventional interventional radiology room for all of our standard cases. And now with the ramping up and testing, there's a lot more testing that we're able to do pre-procedure when we feel it's needed. Fortunately, our hospital has been very supportive and they've essentially told us we leave it to your expertise when you think a patient needs to be tested within the guidelines that have been set. So they've been very supportive in terms of getting patients tested when we think that they need to. But one of the challenges is for some of these patients, they come from far away. And so having them come, just the act of having them come here just to get tested before a procedure, I'm kind of torn about it because why have them come to the hospital if they're asymptomatic and they've been sheltering in place for a test 
in an area where other patients who are potentially COVID positive are going to also be getting tested. And so, you know, it's a tough balance right now, I think. And so we're still kind of in that phase where we're trying to find what the right balance is for these outpatients as we bring them back in to, you know, get their procedures done. I think that's really well put. It is a really tough balance now, I think, for everyone in healthcare. And I think it's really helpful that the toolkit is there online and that we're able to benefit, too, from some of the experiences that you've gone through and and have been able to share so that we can learn as we go. None of us ever learned any of this in medical school, you know, fellowship, like this. And so anytime there's someone we can benefit from, I think we all gain from that. So I'd like to thank you very much for sharing and certainly wish you all the best. Thank you, Warren. I appreciate you having me on. That was Dr. Raj Shah talking about the SIR COVID-19 toolkit and his experience with the pandemic. We thank Dr. Shah and all the other members of SIR's toolkit task force, Drs. Laura Findice, Tori Andrews, Aaron Brandis, Andrew Kaplan, Christine Kim, Janice Newsom, Rex Pillai, Siddhartha Tavri, Derek Tran, and Shamar Young. Learn more about the COVID-19 toolkit on surweb.org. Thank you for listening to King Wire. Our host is Dr. Warren Craycock. Our editor is Dr. Jamin Shaw. Our production manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at irq.surweb.org.